0: We're looking at this idea of uh, leading with love over license, over your license, your freedom uh, in your faith, uh, and it's a, uh, it's a fascinating psalm. This has been like my favorite, uh, my, the one that I'm like most excited to preach about, but then I get up to it, and I'm like, oh, this is great, this is great, and I feel like now I'm at, at like the, uh, I've climbed up to the top of the, of the roller coaster, this is the one I, I want, and then and I'm up there, and I'm like, oh man, this thing is just massive, uh, so... Um, what a beautiful uh, text for us today. What a beautiful uh, passage for us today. Um, yeah, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. You know, I think what I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll read through this um, and, then we'll, uh, and then we'll work through it together, um, kind of framing up how this works and we'll move, move towards uh, how we uh, put uh, 1 Corinthians 8 into action in our head and in our hearts uh, together as we go from here. So I will read the, uh, the text for us today. Now concerning food offered... as indeed there are many gods, there are many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. Yet some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and uh, and their conscience, being weak, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, this falls into the context of all of First Corinthians. What Paul is uh, is expressing to us in First Corinthians is, uh, or to the Corinthian church, is the same thing he is uh, addressing to our Corinthian hearts. What's happening in the Corinthian church is that they have a lot of, they've been enriched with uh, with wisdom, uh, with knowledge. They've been enriched with. Uh, with, uh, with eloquence, with fine-sounding speech. And so they're, they're, they're the movers and the shakers, they're the educators, they're, they are the elite, they are the knowledgeable ones, the knowers uh, of the community. And this, this culture that gravitates towards this kind of elitist uh, has severed what the idea of the family of God is, what the body of Christ is, because it, it makes different categories. So there's this, this status marker of all different kinds that is that is destroying the church. There are factions over here. By the way, some people talk. There are factions based on marital status. There are factions uh, based on uh, on just their understanding of, uh, of all these different practices. Today, we're going to get the one that doesn't entirely translate to us uh, immediately uh, today, unless we have friends or relatives that maybe are, are, are Buddhist or Hindu. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about this, this principle behind this idea of food sacrificed uh, to idols. What, what we're going to see here uh, is that Paul is not focusing on changing the weak brother or sister. I think that's a big important thing to kind of frame up exactly what we're talking about because this text seems strange uh, on the first go. Uh, so we're not talking about changing anything about the weaker Christian brother or sister. We're not, changing, uh, we're not talking about how we're going to go about educating them, which is someone who loves to teach, just drives me crazy about this text. I'm like, just tell them the truth. Uh, but he says there's something else we need to worry about. Um, the way we interact with people when we know that they don't have the same standards that the gospel has given us. So what do we do before we may move towards teaching, before we may move towards some other, um, some other activity within the Christian faith, what do we do with our brothers and sisters when they are, I don't even, I I don't know, maybe I could say when they are not as mature in a certain area, they don't have, the gospel has not been as clear to them on their decision-making and their practice, what do we do with them when we're in their presence, regardless of how we're going to teach them? There is a posture that the gospel invites us to, and the way we interact, in the way we act in the presence of others, that also complements how we teach, but we're not talking about the teaching, we're not talking about changing them, it's entirely on those who are in the knowledge, who have the depths and are committed to certain parts or to how the gospel applies to their life, how are they, how are we to interact with one another? I do want to make it very clear also that we're talking specifically in, in 1 Corinthians 8 about Christians, about brothers and sisters. The, the whole book of 1 Corinthians is written to the church, this is not, uh, this is not uh, first and foremost, a letter written as kind of a, a, a missiology, a, a church's statement on how we will do outreach and mission. Like, that is not what 1 Corinthians is doing. 1 Corinthians is dealing with the inside stuff, uh, is written to the church. I mean, in chapter uh, 8, verse 13, Paul even will conclude, therefore, if it makes my brother stumble, not if it makes an outsider stumble, if it makes my brother stumble. We're talking about one another here. And so how do we relate with one another as we are convicted to different levels with different levels of knowledge and understanding and experience in our Christian walk? How do we do this? So I, it's, what a great question. Uh, what a great question. Uh, though, uh, though the verse remind, uh, reminds us that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, it almost seems as though Paul is going to conclude kind of the converse of it, that the knower, the one with the knowledge, is to humble himself or herself because love does not destroy. And if we go about our life leading with knowledge, leading with our license, we may be in danger of destroying someone who is still trying to figure out what's right and wrong in the Christian life. So I love this, uh, and I I feel like this has been a very convicting, I'm still wrestling through this, uh, this text and what it means for my own life, um, but I love where where it puts us. So I want to go through this maybe uh, two, three ways um, today, and just kind of define some of the terms here. Uh, what is this idea of knowledge and conscience? So, I guess our first point, I don't know how much this is a, this is a, this is a good point, is basically knowledge and, uh, and conscience. So, as I already addressed, all are Christian. Uh, all are Christian um, here. He's addressing the church. He's specifically addressing the brothers. Uh, so, at the, at the moment, like if you are watching or you are here and you are an unbeliever, you have not confess your sin to Christ, and ask for forgiveness of that sin, if that's not you, like just to be clear, you are not part of this, like you're not in this text here, Um, but you are invited. I'll get back to this. You are invited to be part of this family, Uh, very much so. We want you to be part of this family, Uh, and so kind of think about uh, this text and what we're about to talk about more as you are invited to just sit in on a family talking about their family values. This is how we talk uh, when we talk. So, there are two groups of sub-Christians here, or two subgroups, you know, of Christians. So, this one side is these, these knowers, uh, these, these knowledge people. I, I would say they're elitist, but maybe that's okay to say, but I just want to go with they have knowledge. He says that all of us possess knowledge. Uh, that's verse one. However, this knowledge puffs up, but love uh, builds up. So, there's a knowledge that is that, that comes to us somehow. One commentator writes it this way. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Paul Gardner. This knowledge is a spirit-given understanding about how to live and practice the Christian life. I think that's a really helpful definition. How does this knowledge come about? It's spirit-given. And I would say it's maybe even more than that. It's spirit-given. This knowledge that we have of how to live our Christian life out is, is spirit-given. It's, it's God-commanded. Um, and I think, even going back to chapter 4, verse, what is it? 17. Um, we see that that is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of the ways of Jesus Christ. And so it's also taught in the church. There's a way in which we get this knowledge about our convictions and about our practice in life. The Spirit gives it, the Word directs it, and then we kind of work that out within the church with our leaders there. And so all of those are part of how we get to the knowledge. We're focusing right now on our practice in the midst of others. So, what is this knowledge? What makes up the knowledge that the Spirit has given, that the Word has given us? It's this idea that, verse 4, there is no God but one. I mean, that's the very fundamental basis of this. There is no God but one. I mean, just practically, let's think about this. Uh, Why would we sacrifice to idols if there's only one God? This whole area of idolatry and sacrificing to idols is kind of a, a make believe, pretend world, is what Paul is saying, because the reality is there's only one God. And he says, so this is the knowledge we have. And so maybe Christians may understand both of these things, but there's something more going on in their context and something that translates to ours. He says, so, so if, the one thing he says is there is no God but one, then, then therefore uh, an idol has no real existence. If there is one God, then this whole other idea of idols of any kind, it doesn't make any sense. It's not, it's not a real thing. But he goes even further than this, and, and I think this is just so fascinating, because I would love him just to like give me just his, his basic statements and then conclude, which he kind of is doing here, but he adds something. In verse 6, he says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, uh, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. Right here, Paul is, is reinforcing this notion of, uh, where have we heard this before, uh, that there is no God but one. He's taking something that, that Christians would have known, or rather, the, the Jewish would have known. The Israelites, the Hebrews, they would have known this thing. This is back in Deuteronomy 6. This is called the, the Shema, uh, which means hear, Shema Israel. Those are the first words, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He's pulling that back in. He's saying all the way back, that far back, all of this is pointing to that there is one God. Paul says this to them. It says, this whole thing is showing you there is one God. And I love how this happens. These historical documents are put before us. And then he adds, this is one God and Father. And we could say, oh yeah, like all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of them, we're all one Father. The next line he says, For there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, who is God the Father. No, it is Jesus Christ. What happened that this one God is also Jesus Christ? This is huge. All of history has been designed and now we have been revealed that there are more persons in this Godhead. There is one God and Jesus Christ is that God. This guy that the Corinthians had heard about, that walked about decades before this church became was God. Emmanuel. This is who he's talking about. This is the foolishness of the world. This is the wisdom of God and the power of God, Jesus Christ. And so he takes this whole tradition and he says, and Jesus Christ is at the center of it. There is one God and it all is wrapped around Jesus Christ because he changes those words there. Word nerds, you really need to dissect. Verse 6, If there is one God from whom all things are and for whom we exist, he is the creator and worthy of our worship. That's what it's saying. There is one Lord in Jesus Christ through whom, there's a word change there, through whom all things are and through whom we exist. He is the essence of our reality. God creates it and he's worthy of our worship. And without Jesus Christ, that's all we have. Christ fills the whole thing out. Through him, all is there. And this is what we understand. Those of us who have this knowledge those of us who are the knowers. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. This is where it gets interesting. Because before I was like, amen, amen, let's go. But does it, not everybody has this knowledge. So then we get to these people who are the, uh, these Christians who are the, the weak conscience Christians. So what does conscience mean here? Uh, several times it's going to talk about this conscience. Their conscience being weak Uh, is defiled. A conscience is something inside of a person that determines the right or wrong. I think that's probably the best way to to explain that. Uh, Something inside a person that determines right or wrong. Now, within their context, there's this idea of consciousness, like an awareness of where you are standing uh, within others and with with God. And I think that that makes sense within all of Corinthians. There's very much an awareness of like, where am I at in the status uh, in society and with God. Uh, but I really do think there's something about this idea of the, the conscience, not consciousness, conscience, that's this idea to choose right and wrong. This is something where maybe you, ha- you came, came to Christ. You, you had this saving faith. There's sin, and there's forgiveness of sin, and then we start to walk in our faith, and like, I don't actually know how that applies to all of these things. That's where these people are at. These people with a weak conscience, it's not because they're weak and they're dumb. It's because they just don't understand how the gospel plays out in all of their life. So it seems like Jesus is big into reconciliation. As I turn that, how do I apply reconciliation in my life? Like I really have to forgive that person? There we go. That's a little red flag. Like, Oh, I'm weak in conscience. I'm not devoted to forgiveness in that area. Or he says... That, uh, you know, obey, obey my commands, not my will but yours be done. But it seems like if I go with God's will, I'm going to have to stop doing a whole lot of stuff. There we go. That's what it means to be weak and to be growing in that. Some, because of their former idolatry, which would have been you and I before we came to Christ, that we didn't have little wooden idols or stone idols that we imagine when we read 1 Corinthians, we have so many idols. We haven't shook that off yet. That's what he's saying. Those people who haven't shook off the old ways of their idolatry, they are the ones who have this weak conscience. The gospel and all of its meaning, all of its trajectories has not permeated, has not gone throughout all of their life. So some people are farther along in certain areas and some people aren't. How do we interact together in this way? That's the question that we're asking here, not just talking about should I eat this food or not. Both of these subgroups, uh, they, have a, they have an error. They have a misunderstanding of the gospel. The knowers have a, uh, have a, they have a misunderstanding of the ortho, orthopraxis, the, the right practice of the gospel. Uh, those who are weak in conscience have, have a misunderstanding of the orthodoxy, the right doctrine. The doctrine, this food doesn't mean anything. Uh, and the knowers, but you, you still got to practice love, even if you know something. And that's What's at stake there? So, uh, as we go through this a little bit more, I wanted to define those. So that, that's like point one: knowledge and conscience, the knowers and the weak. Uh, this this second one is 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 kind of the big interaction and in how we relate to each other. Uh, this point I would call maybe like mistaken agency. Um, and so, an agent. What is this agency? An agent is someone or something that that carries uh, that that I guess that that makes into effect something else. That didn't help with the definition. Um, it, it is someone that, uh, or something that, that does something that has a result. So uh, let me go this way. Um, uh, the, the government or the, the police or, the, you know, law enforcement wants you to be safe when you drive. So they program stoplights to turn different colors to direct traffic. Their desire for good order and safety they have put their agency of that rather than having to traffic cop out there all the time, they've put that into the stoplight. That is the agent to create the intended effect of safety, right? So that's kind of how that works. There's a mistake in agency two different ways here. So for those who are not in the know, those who are weak. Their mistaken agency is that food commends us to God. I'm just working through the text here. As they say, uh, this is verse 8 food will not commend us to God. They didn't quite figure this out. They think that food is that agent that will actually commend them to God. So it's not Jesus Christ, it's not me or myself, but it's the food that I eat that is actually going to make me in a better standing with, with God. Does that make sense? Some religions today, some expressions of Christianity today still feel that. Taking communion actually does something for you to put you before God. Getting baptized actually does something to put you before God. These are things you must do. Speaking in tongues does something that puts you before God at a different status. And Paul's saying, no, that's not how that goes. That's not how that works. So what is this idea? I think the big... Point here is commending before God. What does this mean to commend before God? This is all like crazy Christian, Christian language here. Let's just break it down because Paul's pretty normal. We're pretty normal, and this is really helpful. To commend, as Paul is speaking of here in verse 8, he uses this, this word uh, elsewhere uh, when he writes to churches. Uh, in one case, uh, Romans 12, he speaks about it as presenting ourselves, commending ourselves before God as a sacrifice. Or he says uh, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, which we'll read a little bit later, is that we present before the judgment. We are presented before God, before judgment. This food will not actually put you before God so that he can say, oh, this is good. This food is not really doing anything. It doesn't matter. Food is neither good nor bad. It does not commend us to God. However, it can be twisted by sin to become something destructive. If we put rules around it, If we leave people in ignorance, if we don't address everything that's there, it could lead us toward destructive behavior. Um, What is this? Uh, So I'm gonna get out of the food sacrifice to idol thing. Okay, this principle applies to something like many of the the non-moral things that we interact with every day. Social media, this is a great one. I mean, this is just so ripe there. There There's some people who find their worth in the like button. That may be something of this nature. If this is a weakness for someone, this may be something where we have to think, "Oh, what do I do? What does my interaction on, on, on social media um, have to do? Uh, I think we could go to, to maybe some other, other places, is uh, if uh, substances uh, are some, uh, may not seem as a sin to some or to others, we may have to reconsider, what am I doing when I go out to eat? Do I eat this food? Do I drink this drink? What if someone, without having a conversation, sees me and thinks that it's unintentionally blessed? And they, in their sin, struggling with this, go the wrong direction. He's not writing out the lines of what we should and shouldn't do as Christians. He's moving us to think lovingly in consideration of one another as we go about our lives. Teaching will happen in the church, as we've seen it is happening in the Corinthian church, but what do we do in the midst of that? It's not just teach and then go do whatever we want. There's a full embodied integrity of the gospel that happens in our words and in our actions as we show love to one another. I'll get to this, uh, this other stuff, the application side, a little bit more. I do want to continue on kind of to bring about why this is a gospel issue because right now it just seems like we're talking about food and idols. This is a misunderstanding of the gospel when we think that food commends us to God because food does, uh, does not do this. It is Christ Jesus who commends us to God. He and he alone commend us to God. But on the other side, um, on the other side of this, the knowers, they have a mistaken agency. They, they are thinking something different. They think that, that their action does or rather doesn't do things uh, that, that, that it actually is, is doing here. So what is their problem? They have a disassociation they kind of have this approach that says, I know some stuff, and because I know that stuff, yeah, that's not my problem. They're just weak. They just are immature. They just need to learn more about God. I can do whatever I want. I'm not causing them to sin. That's on them. It says, no, you, you really need to think a little bit more compassionately about how you are living your life, because if they don't know, if they don't know where to find it, they're going to be looking at you for an example of how we should do this. And so don't disassociate don't downplay what your example in the community is as you slander one another as you gossip as you drink as you do whatever you are modeling for those who don't know everything that they need to know what do we know about kids in a young age and in their infancy they use every one of their senses to figure out the world when you're in the infancy of your faith You're using every one of your senses. Somehow, when we get more mature in the faith, we just think that we just shut everything down, and it's just our brain, and it's just our brain, and it doesn't matter. Think of the whole of how we learn, especially when we're in the infancy. And this is what Paul is doing. He's saying just, just love, just think more compassionately this way. Because if you don't, this this love or this expression is puffed up. Not my problem. Destructive approach. Fellowship. So I'll get to the resolution here uh, a bit. What he's urging us to then, knowing that there are knowers, uh, that there are uh, weak in conscience, knowing that they both have a misunderstanding of the gospel, he then moves us to the gospel foundation and how to move forward. In verse 7, you can kind of follow along uh, here. I'm just going to summarize the, the argument that he's making. It he says, Some Christians, through their former religion, through their former life, the former way of being, they, number one, they still eat food offered to idols. They still do the things they did before, even though they say they're Christians. And also, they believe that those actually have spiritual power to present them good or bad before God. There are two things that we bring into our Christianity that these people are bringing in. It says, the knowers, verse 8, the knowers understand that the former way has no, nothing to do with our standing before God, because there's forgiveness of sins. However, when those of us who know participate as though we were in the old life, the old way, for the weak ones, for the, for the, for the young Christians, for the immature Christians, for those people, we unintentionally bless those motives, those ways, making it seem like that's the way Christians live. Okay, I'm going to go into this. Um, here's a very pointed one. It's going to be really helpful, really dicey, uh, really, uh, uh, for this week. There's this idea at the last, uh, at the last uh, election that uh, I know people who, who actively like gathered together for lament. That seems to be an old way, old life approach to who is our God and King. To think that not God or not God's servant became president of the United States makes lament strange. That's weird. <laughs> to uh, If you go forward this week singing the joys of God that your candidate was put on the throne or lamenting that the wrong guy was put on the throne, you may, in your words, be unintentionally blessing that politics... American politics that the President of the United States is in fact a higher Savior than Jesus Christ. Because no matter who is our president at the end of this week, Jesus Christ is still on the throne. This is exactly what we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 8. We fall into this too much. We fall into this idea that, oh, I'm a Christian, I understand all of the theology, I understand how the theology applies to the politics, and I can say this thing or that thing, but there are people who don't understand the difference between Christianity and politics. And I would say, I probably don't understand the difference between Christianity and politics because it feels like we just threw those in a couple hundred years ago, hit blend, and now we just got this weird (laughs) soup. This is exactly how this kind of a thing applies. So we can talk about, what do we drink beer or not? But I think this is probably a better better one. You know, and, I, and I will go even further. We've already stepped into this. I will go a little bit further. I think this is kind of that confusing weirdness that is QAnon. Like they've taken this, this idea, regardless of who, who the person is that they're advocating is the new messiah, which is what they're doing, regardless of who that person is, whether you like him or not, they're taking this idea that the office of the president is actually the messiah. And that everything around the Messiah is to take down the Messiah. That's weird. It's just weird. I can't read a page of scripture and think that that checks out. It's just, it's just a weird thing. But who is the Savior? That's what we need to be putting forward. Who is the Savior? Not our food, not our president, it's Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. I'm going to to speed through this. You can go to it and kind of follow along, but I've kind of chopped it up just to move us along here. Hebrews 9, 11 through 15 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Lots of Christian words there. When Christ appeared as the high priest, okay, get that. He's the priest. He's the one officiating the service, and at those services, there were sacrifices. He entered once and all for the holy place. This is the place where God dwells. He is the high priest. He's the only one who can go before God in his holiness. He can't have our sticky, slimy sins in his presence. And how does he take care of this? Not by means of the blood of bulls and goats. It wasn't that kind of of washing. It was by his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. That is the forgiveness of sins. We'll continue on uh, through in, in verse 13 if you're following along there. And he says, For if the blood of bulls and goats can sanctify, that is, can wash us clean, can make us clean and holy and pure, if they can present us holy to God, how much more with the blood of Christ? A bull and a goat has blemish. But Jesus Christ, through whom the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish, how much more can He purify our conscience? from dead works, to serve the living God. Therefore, Jesus Christ, as the high priest, stands as mediator of the new covenant. There is one God, and he brings us into these rules. We stick our hand into that pumpkin, and we get all messy. He's the one that washes it clean. That is the story. That is the highest thing that we should be talking about. Jesus Christ is the one who is the agent, not our food, not our president, not our social profile. That's not who gets us before God. It's Jesus Christ. He is the priest and also the sacrifice. I don't know how that works. It's a mystery. It's beautiful. He's both of those. And he brings us in a beautiful worship service that is our life and sanctification. He brings us before God. He's also the judge. And he looks out. He's the judge. Jesus is the judge, but he looks out on two of us, somehow himself, and us, and he says, let me read the law. Okay, you are guilty, you are innocent, but I'm going to give you the guilt and you the innocence, put you on the cross, and you come, let's enjoy the feast. That's crazy. That is the gospel. He is the priest. He is the judge. This is the one who brings us before God, and this is the one who makes it so that God will say, you are forgiven, you are washed clean, you are holy. Come let's dine together 2 Corinthians 4:13 Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been has been uh, written I believed and so I spoke we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and then the same word as commend as the food does here he will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Who brings us into the presence of God? Jesus Christ. Verse 9, then, is our big principle for the day and probably the urge of the entire text. Take care that this right of yours does not how, somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Take care. Mind your manners so that your manners don't unintentionally bless wrong ways. So, how do we move forward together? Maybe I'll give you a, a couple suggestions on, uh, on what that might mean. I would say we move together as a family. We move together as missionaries. We move together uh, as students. So, unbelievers, uh, talking to you again, uh, thank you for patience uh, as, we, as we kind of talk through our family values. Unbelievers are guests. They're here. They're in a presence, You're invited by God to be part of his family. Your actions, your knowledge, your conscience, they do matter. But your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin is what matters most. That is simply how I believe. I for, uh, Acknowledge I am a sinner. I have done wrong things. Forgive me. And Jesus, lead me. That's it. That's what we've all done. That's, that, that's as simple as that. I mean, it's, it sounds simple. It's incredibly difficult because of our stubborn pride. If that is you, if that is you, you have asked for forgiveness of sin and 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 asked Christ to lead you. Then you are part of the family. And as part of the family, I think we need to acknowledge that you know everybody's got their thing. <laughs> some of us are farther, more mature in certain areas, and some of us are not as mature. I don't think that it's one one size fits all. You're either up here and you're the knower, and you're a jerk because you know and you don't love. I don't think that's entirely it. Nor are you just ignorant, you are weak, and always there. We need each other in all these different areas. And we're going to come online at different orders. And it's going, to create, it's going to need a whole lot of conversation and even more patience. Because I've got about three or four things that I feel like I'm pretty far down the tracks on, and I get really annoyed when people aren't there with me. But because of their patience, <laughs> I find that they're probably annoyed with me on certain other parts that I'm still coming online to. The gospel's big. We aren't going to eat it all in one bite. So have some patience as we chew it together. So, for you, knowers. So that's how we, we, we come together as, as a family. Uh, how do we come together as, as missionaries? Knowers, this is for you. If you do know something, I, I would suggest that you pray fervently, that others might, might learn even in spite of how you model it, even in spite of how you maybe wrongly understand a text, pray that the Spirit would move them along in their faith. Pray that He would give you the right words and thoughts as you speak to them when that occasion comes. So pray fervently. Be prepared to give a defense when asked. And then love always. Uh, there is... Um, this idea of missionaries. I think this is a great, great, great example of this. Uh, sometimes, um, we might have the right words, but we're speaking the wrong language, or we're going about it with the wrong reasoning. Missionaries oftentimes will go into you know, another culture. They have to learn that culture. They have different words. They have different you know, analogies, word pictures. They have different histories. Uh, they, they even have different ways of thinking. Um, the idea of family and how that relates is very different in Iowa than it is in the middle of Mexico. I mean, just that close. We have very different understandings of how family works. Now, this, this happens with so many other things. So I would encourage you, if you do know that there is someone who is weaker, if you do have more knowledge in that, maybe take a pause and think as a missionary. Do they speak business language and only that? The gospel can speak through that. Do they speak and only speak in the ways of the world? Do they speak in, in popular culture? Do they speak in music? Do they speak in these areas? There are so many avenues to teach someone the gospel and to compel them to the gospel. If we pause and show, maybe we just need to adapt the way in which we're talking about it. It seems as though Jesus did that. It seems like that's a great example for us to put on the trappings of whoever we are ministering to as we teach and encourage them. I'm not saying just bend all the way, all the way that way, because there are certain things that we do need to know. There are certain truths that we need to know sanctification, justification. Some of these things are words that need to be known for Christians. But to move us along, sometimes we might need to approach that on their terms, with their reasoning. Maybe they're super logical, maybe they're not. Speak the gospel that way. So, knowers approach as missionaries, because God loves the weak ones. A whole awful lot. Here in 1 Corinthians, uh, we we read in 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul even says, to the weak, I became weak. So he's not throwing the weak out here. To the weak, I became weak. That's exactly the point I just made. But then, turning to the weak, he would also say, 1 Corinthians 12.22, the weak are indispensable. And we need them. They're part of us. And so how do you have value if you are the weaker one? You're not dragging us down. How are you to be viewed? Uh, maybe, maybe adopt the approach as students. If you're confused on how to think and act as Christians, put down your pride and ask some questions. It says that this, uh, this, this conscience that we have, that it can be uh, defiled. I think it's verse 7. Uh, it says in verse, uh, verse 12 that it can be wounded. But in verse 10, it gives us a, a huge word here, is that it can be encouraged. The word that it uses here is that it can be built up. Have hope. Your weak conscience can be built up. That's wonderful. So ask for help in that. Question everything in light of Jesus Christ. Read scripture. Seek an instructor or mentor. Invite dialogue on life and faith, not just on theology, but as we talk more about theology and life, we'll see how those are pretty interwoven. But we may not be there, so you can just talk about them differently. That would be my my hope, my recommendation for you. I have a whole lot of other notes, but I think I'm just going to summarize those notes as, I'd love to talk about this a whole lot more because I think this matters. Um, So if that's something that you would want to talk about, how we directly, indirectly, or even with our silence, unintentionally endorse wrong ways of, of applying the gospel. We've got some more notes for that. Right now, I I think I would just encourage you to lead with love over license. You may have knowledge, but be careful that that knowledge isn't puffed up knowledge, judgmental knowledge that may destroy another, that you don't have a distancing of your knowledge from the, the, the responsibility you have to one another we got to help each other with our words and with our actions understand the clarity of the gospel as it applies to our daily lives. So, lead with love over license. Let's pray to God and ask that He help us to do this. This is a, an incredibly difficult task, but not if we have a clarity of Christ in every day. So, let's pray. God, we thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you for the, for the, uh, the immensity of it. It is an enormous mountain, and we are at the base of it, and it seems unscalable. <laughs> Will we reach the summit? pray that you would help us in our hearts and our minds to remember that the summit may not be ours today, but the next step is help us to be focused on today keeping in mind that we're on a journey. Help us not focus only at our, at our feet. Help us focus at, at the company that we have with us, our brothers and sisters. And thank you that the church is not simply uh, that thing that you've created to sing songs and read the Bible on Sunday morning, but the church is the embodied movement of Jesus Christ as we journey and stumble and trip and celebrate and sing and rejoice in just this really messy journey we call faith. Thank you for the journey. Thank you for our brothers and sisters. I pray that you convict us where we are unloving. I pray that you would raise our awareness and concern of one another. I pray that you would break down hesitation and pride and fear of hurting others so that we can truly help one another move towards a clarity of Jesus Christ in our daily lives. Thank you for your patience and your example.